Thank you for joining us. This is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fishery science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at fisheriespod. If you're the generous type, you can be like Ben, Janet, Garrett, John, and Jerry, who all support the podcast on Patreon. Through Patreon, you're able to support the show with either a recurring or a one-time donation, which helps us pay for various parts of the show. If that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, and stickers on our Teespring store, so go check that out. Today on the show, we're going to have Kwasia Day. He is a fish and wildlife biologist at the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife, where he has worked on several projects for the last nine years. He completed his Bachelor of Science in Zoology and his Master in Environmental Studies in Fishery Science at the Evergreen State College in Olympia. His work focuses primarily on monitoring commercial salmon fisheries in Puget Sound. Welcome to the podcast, Kwasi. Hey, thank you. Thank you very much. I usually like to start the podcast kind of getting uh, a little bit of background about our guests. So Mm -hmm. I am wondering if you can tell me a little bit about where your interest in fisheries first began. Ooh, that's a really good question. So my uh, interest in fisheries began not in undergrad. In undergrad, I was like several folks pursuing a marine science career because we thought charismatic megafauna was awesome. So I was looking at any research or anything I could do with uh, pinnipeds, actually. Uh, So within that process, I interned at a nonprofit that sent me out on commercial whale watching boats so I could do photographic identification of gray whales. And from there, that kind of kick-started. I really like working on boats, and then boats led to fisheries observing up in Alaska. That was pretty much kind of my first experience with being a fish tech, if you will. I did not grow up fishing. It's never been a hobby of mine. And from fisheries observing, I think I realized that there's definitely a need for more management, more managers to come into the role. You know, I really got to see the human aspect of it. And I think that kind of just gave me a good spark to get back into graduate school and continue on to where I'm at today. Very cool. Yeah. I know a lot of, a lot of people start doing marine science because they like things like whales and sharks and in your case, pinnipeds. That's pretty cool. So when you did go back to do your master's in environmental studies, what was your focus? So my focus through the Evergreens Environmental Study Program, it's an interdisciplinary degree, which is, I mean, I can't speak higher about this program that they have in little tiny Olympia, you know, North Pacific Northwest, beautiful campus, tons of trees, and, you know, a strong professor-led with collaborations with a lot of state government and federal government. Since Olympia is our capital, we have a lot of the headquarters for a lot of the uh, state agencies around here. But my focus specifically was working with Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife, where I inevitably ended up looking at ground fish biodiversity. Some of them we eat, ling cod, tom cod, pollock, Pacific cod, and our rockfish uh, populations, all within the San Juan Island area of the Salish Sea. So if you're not familiar with Washington, that's a little north of the Olympic Peninsula. And it's a huge archipelago of islands that are in between Canada, that being British Columbia province, and Washington. So looking at these groundfish assemblages and diversity and using uh, spatial arc map, Uh, and different things to analyze their biodiversity. 
due to management effects of marine protected areas. So can you talk a little bit about what data collection for your project looked like? Yeah. So my uh, data collection was actually archival. I was using data that spanned at the time, I believe it was 1989 to 2011. Every year, the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife does a bottom fish trawl survey. Trawlers are actually banned in in Washington, except for scientific purposes. So it's a smaller research vessel, the FV Chasina. It does purseining in Alaska and then comes down and is a contracted research vessel with our agency. Uh, Every year, there's a series of sites all throughout Puget Sound, and we do bottom survey trawls, look at the assemblages of catch, and then compare that to previous years and how that's changed over time, compare it to any other variables like uh, sea surface temperature, um, where these fish are being caught, as far as what's the bottom consistently like. That was a big part of my thesis. And some of the bottom information uh, was being collected through ROV. So at the time that I was in grad school, we had a really old research vessel and just using a simple A-frame off the back, fly a, um, gonna not remember the brand or name of the ROV, but get down to the bottom and see what fish were encountered, and then also the substrate type. I, at the time, got to volunteer with a lot of the ROV deployment, and then since the huge chunk of my data was archival, uh, DFW was more than willing to have me go through a lot of the archival data sets. Um, So fortunately, and maybe unfortunately, I didn't get to spend the long, long hours needed to process ROV data, which is just staring at the recordings of the high-def camera speciating fish. Yeah, those like historical data set analyses are maybe not the most exciting part of science, but super, super important to compare past and present. Oh, yeah. And with DFW and I think with most places, gosh, we're just like a a master's gold mine with the amount of data we have that's either gone unprocessed or has been processed for sake of management for a particular project tons of opportunities for these long-term studies. Like if you could see, like, I mean, the walls of our cubicles are essentially just file cabinets with data going back in excess of a hundred years in some cases for some, some species. I mean, I'm, I'm just imagining like trying to parse through that (laughs) and get the information that you need out of it in general is probably very time consuming. Oh yeah. And my, my 13 year time chunk, I, I couldn't imagine using more years at the time. That would have that would have been real tough. But yeah. So with the data in hand, I just I did uh, several different spatial analyses to look at where our established marine protected areas are, and if there was any increase decrease in biodiversity using a couple of biodiversity indices. That kind of got my head uh, turned towards, you know, the anthropogenic management effects on species assemblages, whether we harvest them or not. Um, it definitely, no matter what we as humans do in our landscape or aquascape, could have detrimental effects on fish specifically that we generally just kind of don't think about. You know, like we don't spend all day really thinking about the 28 plus species of rockfish that we have in the Salish Sea, some with much stronger populations than others. You know, they're all 
the same genus, but they all have very different uh, ecologies and different lifespans and different breeding habitats needed. So it's it's this this idea that you know what we are doing as people have such direct effect that really got me into understanding how a management protocol like in a marine protected area, um, you know, invisible lines to fish, but lines on a chart plotter could uh, improve or decrease, you know, the survival of some of these uh, individual organisms. So when you did go through and look at all this data, what were your primary findings? Can you talk a bit about your results? Yeah, I think, um, now mind you, I'm, I'm dredging my memory here. This was already 10 years ago. I think the primary results for the type of marine protected areas that we have in the Salish Sea are that they are in the right area. You know, we put them out geographically over areas of highly defined substrates. So places with a lot of slope or places with holes, rocks, you know, stuff that these rockfish can actually use as normal habitat. So that was my main question from a management stake. Are we just throwing them out there willy-nilly saying, look, we've protected, you know, this amount of acreage of water, or is it strategic based on the ecology of the species we're trying to protect? Early work with marine protected areas and in other countries showed and, you know, I think an attempt to get management's buy-off on them or countries to put them in place was saying, if you protect a certain area, you're going to get the spillover effect of species breeding in the marine protected areas. And then you're going to, you can allow a fisheries fleet to fish on the perimeter of them. Um, you know, that works for certain species, not all, not generally ground fish where it would, they have high site fidelity super long lifespans. Um, they're going to be breeding late in life. Some rockfish don't reach sexual maturity until 15, 16. So then you have to think of this marine protected area as a long-term management plan rather than a quick fishery solution. Um, so there's, you know, there's multiple different goals for policies putting MPAs in place. Uh, so with what I found, very little evidence of the spillover effect, almost a general assemblage of uh, species diversity that didn't correlate at all with presence in a marine protected area or distance from a marine protected area. The strongest correlations were um, substrate and habitat. So areas of high substrate structure, you're going to get uh, the fish that use that substrate areas of like shell hash, sand, mud, big open flat swaths, you'll see the ground fish species that prefer that. So that's where we saw like a lot of juvenile cod species and then smaller, you know, uh, midwater fish that were still in the data set, but, you know, not the species that I, were look I was looking for. We then can kind of extrapolate saying, well, we don't really need to worry about protecting for the actual species. We do really need to worry about protecting the actual habitat. And the species are going to do what, what the fish are going to do. But as long as we ensure that this habitat so is free from, let's say, anchor drops or uh, fishing in a way, and a little sidetrack is one of the ways we uh, protect the habitat from fishing is we have depth restrictions for a lot of our sport fisheries um, because we know rockfish prefer areas of much deeper than, let's say, salmon. We don't allow fishers to fish deeper than, I believe, it's 120 feet. Uh, and then we have no rockfish take is allowed within Puget Sound. 
it makes so much sense that, you know, protecting the habitat protects the fish. Very cool that you were able to kind of confirm that. Yep. Yeah. Awesome. So since then, were you able to see this work that you did kind of translate into policy? I know you already talked about the fishing regulations. Has anything changed as a result of your of your project? To my knowledge, no, <laughs> which is in a way a good thing. I feel we have pretty strong protection policies for our ground fish. I mean, the one positive change is we removed the canary rockfish from threatened in Salish Sea. So that, that happened, the delisting, if you will, happened after my thesis. I know you said that you had already been working with the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife during your graduate studies, correct? Volunteering, yeah. So after you graduated, how did that kind of evolve into the career that you have now? It's funny enough, I really was thinking like, I don't want to work with salmon. You know, I just did this huge two-year project with ground fish. Like, I think they're really, really cool. I knew at the time, like, DFW and salmon go hand in hand. And even I, my last uh, quarter, I did an internship with the Hood Canal Salmon Enhancement Group just to kind of dip my toe in. As as an intern there, I led a, a volunteer crew doing screw trapping for smolt out migration. And Hood Canal Salmon Enhancement Group was doing a collaborative project with NOAA, I believe the Northwest Fishery Science Center up here, and some folks that are now colleagues of mine looking at uh, steelhead and summer chum populations in the Hood Canal, which is like a, a much tighter fjord in the Puget Sound. So from that little bitty internship and then seeing all the jobs coming out I looked at other states and I just realized everything is in salmon. And part of that is, you know, what people's interests are in. And DFW is a government agency funded by uh, our legislator and the money that comes down from the state. And so I, my first uh, salmon job with the agency was doing creeling out in Westport. So I started as a, a tech two with a master's living out of the back of my truck at a buddy's surf shack in Westport, Washington, waking up at four in the morning to go count boats as they would leave the marina. That would then be expanded into an effort count. And that's now that I know that's kind of the back end of it. At the time, I was just a sleepy guy in a sleeping bag on a a jetty trying to stay warm as we're counting these boats go out. And then as they come back from their fishing trips, you interview, interview the captains and anglers and collect fish length, scales, coated wire tags from the snouts of Chinook and Coho. And that was the foot in the door. From there, it was a couple different tech projects. One even actually got me back into groundfish, doing some otolith collection for rockfish and hake. We would collect so many otoliths from the uh, bycatch of the hake fishery in Washington, and then a standardized collection of hake sex length and and Odalis. And from there, I felt like I had enough tech experience to just start applying for some of our biologist positions. And after a couple rounds of interviews, I got the one I'm currently in. So can you tell me a bit about what you currently work on? I know like we've been talking a lot about salmon, but that's very broad. <laughs> There's tons mm-hmm. of different oh. types yep. of salmon that you've mentioned a few of already. So 
can you talk about the kind of different aspects of salmon fisheries that you maybe are looking at or have looked at in the past? Yeah. So specific to my role being the Puget Sound commercial salmon monitoring biologist, and some people will call me a monitoring coordinator, my role is pretty diverse. It involves field time, like I am in right now, and uh, office season. And it's roughly 30% field, 70% quote-unquote office. So my large unit that we're based under is intergovernmental salmon management. And that means we are the fish managers that work very closely with our tribal colleagues and our tribal co-managers from the treaty tribes here in Washington state. Not really on a calendar year, but if we follow the salmon life cycle, so we'll start from eggs being laid in red. So you have salmon coming up upstream. Uh, we have eggs being laid at that time of year. I am, it's actually coincides with our field season. So I'm in the field focusing on the adult fish in the marine areas that we're actually harvesting on. We get into winter. It's when we start prepping for a huge salmon management process called North of Falcon. So you have Falcon, Cape Falcon in Oregon, and the waters north of there up to the Canadian border, Alaska area, are all co-managed by the tribes, Washington and Oregon, and represented by NOAA and the Pacific Marine Fishery Management Council. So without getting too far into the weeds on the North of Falcon process, it pretty much is where we all come to the negotiating table to say who gets to catch what fish, where, when, how many. Um, and as you can imagine, with different state interests, commercial, recreational, and different user groups within those two categories, and then you have all 20-plus treaty tribes who are geographically spread through the state of Washington on the Puget Sound, everyone is going to have their different take. There's a lot of different values um, we ended up really being a, a conversation about the value of salmon, the cultural significance of salmon. It, it's a really amazing process. I feel very lucky and kind of honored to be a part of it because not everyone gets to see the massive amounts of work that go into your Chinook that you have fun fighting for five minutes before you net it or, you know, the handful of chum you persaned up. Uh, so after the North of Falcon process, that's when I hit probably my least favorite part of my job in my year, which is recruiting and hiring. It's just a tough landscape out there right now. So much of our job as fishery managers relies on the technicians who do the work. The agency would be at a standstill without the boots on the ground effort from our technicians kind of to back it up, who I'm interviewing for are uh, anywhere between 8 to 15 scientific technicians that work as fisheries observers under me. So the monitoring program that I'm in charge of specifically monitors gill nets, persanes, beach sains, and reef nets, all forms of targeting commercial salmon in Puget Sound from a non-tribal standpoint. While I do work with my tribal counterparts, we aren't monitoring their gear types unless they ask us specifically for help, um, which hasn't happened yet. But we do have really good relationships with a lot of our tribal fishers and tribal fishery managers. Uh, so I'm recruiting our fisheries observers. It's August. We are just kind of wrapping up training for that right now. I got a good group of people under me. 
Um, we actually have some cold water safety training in the next couple of days. This would be kind of the final part of the preseason for me. We've been fishing. We as the state and folks in the state have been fishing since late May on the coast of Washington for Chinook and into now for Chinook and Coho in the Puget Sound. Uh, we also have a pink salmon year, so it's an an odd year for Washington, which means our pinks return on two-year cycles, and it's when we have pink salmon coming back. So I'm fin- finalizing my preseason for fisheries observing because our main commercial user groups target chum, pink, and sockeye, and those fish conveniently come back a little bit later. This is a broad statement because there are different stocks that have different timings and come back closer to summer. Uh, So once we have fish in the Puget Sound, fish in the waters, we hit an in-season management time to where we're having daily meetings with our tribal co-managers. Myself and my colleagues are in daily communication with our commercial fishing fleets. We're setting weekly regulations and schedules to allow the fleet to fish in certain areas of the Puget Sound with certain gears. And my technicians are using a a protocol to get out and randomly sample. Uh, Some of the sampling we do is this baseline. So for example, next week we'll be in Bellingham Bay uh, interviewing and talking with a lot of our gillnet fishermen to get catch per unit effort. It requires my staff and myself be incredibly flexible this time of year because a lot of our fisheries are at night, uh, so the gillnets can avoid summer vessel traffic. Uh, so we are responsible for monitoring waters clear from the Canadian border all the way down to close to our headquarters in Olympia. So it's it's a lot of work, and I am very thankful for my crew because there's so much data coming in. That's honestly a very huge amount of tasks. <laughs> wow. Anyway. Yeah, I, I think most people think I play on boats because yeah. that's what I show on Instagram. <laughs> Nobody wants to see my three monitors on a daily basis. Maybe I should start a, so you want to be a fisheries manager. Yeah. Well, I mean, just... even as somebody who, you know, <laughs> even as somebody who does some fisheries related work, like I know that, but it's still very jarring you know, what goes into these different positions, because if it were just fishing, like tons of people would do it. Well, so what's actually surprising is our agency hires specific test fishers who go out six hours a day to fish for Chinook and Coho. And those jobs are some of the hardest jobs to recruit for. Even though at the dock, everyone says, oh my gosh, I'd love to do that. You get paid to to fish five days a week. (laughs) And then why doesn't anyone apply for these jobs? When our unit assists the recreational sampling unit, we have test fished. We've done it for a handful of years now. We'll typically go out, you know, eh, three to five times a year in the peak. So just week and it's just another boat collecting data. I can tell you, you know, after two days of that, I'm done. I'm, I'm fine. I caught a couple fish. We, we don't retain them. But yeah, after two days, I'm, I'm spent. Yeah, I can imagine. The work that I've done in the field has been in, you know, like more of a tropical setting or even in the Midwest. Like my impression of the Pacific Northwest area is that it's a little colder, a little wetter. For the fall, yeah. But now we're seeing, you know, this unprecedented heat for our region in the summer. So it's like 
you know, none of us thought that we would be dealing with heat exhaustion of our samplers. And, you know, like before, I'm like literally when I started, the heat exhaustion training was like a PowerPoint that you go through and we all kind of laughed about it. Like, this isn't a thing. And then we're out here on the water. It can get up to, you know, 85 degrees. And um, there was a really cool study just done. I have no clue who I just... I didn't read it. I read the headline and maybe skimmed like the first little part before the ad blocker kicked in. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it, it was saying it looked at um, young folks in their 20s may likely have a lower heat tolerance than previously thought. And it's especially true for uh, young men where heat exhaustion and heat stroke can start to take effect in as a uh, little degrees is like the low 80s if humidity is really high. And that's, of course, what we get working on the water is damn near 100% humidity. One of the things that we've kind of, that you've chatted about a little bit throughout your last couple answers is that you work with both indigenous and non-indigenous commercial fisheries. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was kind of wondering if you could talk a little bit more about maybe what it's like to work between both of these different setups because we did just have an episode indigenous fisheries in canada um i think two episodes ago it'd be cool to hear from you about what your job is as far as managing different types of fisheries yeah so the management that we do is purely non-tribal that's the that is the um responsibility of our unit and overall dfw we are co-managers though and so the tribes do manage themselves, which is, is pretty cool. You know, I think that's the way it should be. So, you know, rewinding back to the 70s and even prior to the 70s, the civil rights movement in the 60s really sparked out here in the Northwest the desire from the tribes to say, hey, you know, we're just going to reclaim our fishing rights and fish to the 1800s treaties that we, as we, I guess I'm speaking as a a tribal person, I am not indigenous of uh, North America, but they wanted to fish to the treaty as they interpreted it, fishing on their usual and accustomed fishing areas, and that started Washington's fish wars. Uh, A lot of this was led by, we have Lorraine Lomas, uh, who is a famous fisheries manager and tribal elder. We had Billy Frank and Billy Frank Jr., who were Nisqually members that led this into the 70s. So, you know, we really had these like fish wars. I mean, that's what they called them back then of, you know, state police being called on tribal fishermen, merely exercising historical time immemorial fishing practices in Puget Sound. So it all kind of culminated in 1974. We had the Bolt decision, U.S. v. Washington, and Judge Bolt, I guess, again, decided in favor of the tribes uh, and their interpretations of the treaties, saying that, yes, you know, the tribes do have rights and access and privilege to what they have had time immemorial. It's like what we forget is that the treaties didn't give anything to the tribes. The treaties said that the U- U.S. government can never take away certain rights. And so through the ruling there, I mean, I, I have two of the books, they're huge of, of his decision. 
And through that ruling, we've established, you know, how the salmon fisheries should be managed um, from kind of a legal level. And then it got kicked down to the state. So at the time, that was the Washington Department of Fisheries. And then we actually had a separate department, the Washington Department of Game. In 1994, both agencies merged to become WDFW. But in between the uh, 70s and kind of 90s to now times, um, it was... I'm not going to say tumultuous. It was really interesting how fisheries were managed. You know, this was clear before my time here. And it was generally before uh, a lot of the North Falcon process started. North Falcon process did start in the 90s, I believe, um, if not late 80s. Um, And so that's what collectively and collaboratively brought the tribes and state representatives to the table. And we also have another agency in there, which is Northwest Indian Fisheries Commission, who do a lot of scientific heavy lifting. Um, I believe their history is like they started as a branch of the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Um, I'm not too clear on that, but we collaborate heavily with Northwest Indian Fisheries staff. They're based here in Olympia with our headquarters. So in a way, I kind of think of them as kind of like how I'm responsible for working with commercial fishermen. Their staff on Northwest Indian fisheries who are responsible of representing like South Sound tribes and their staff who are responsible for representing North Sound tribes. Um, But at the same time, those individual tribes will have their own natural resource departments and fisheries managers, shellfish biologists, you name it. And so we, we all collectively work in this big fish gumbo soup of decision-making and it, it gets tough because as you can imagine, we all have our different education levels, different backgrounds. Quantitatively, we get into arguments over what's the best methodology to use. And everyone generally is really, really smart and really, really passionate. So it takes a lot to come to final agreements on things. And that's at the tech level. And you can imagine how that could, how that kind of shapes itself at the policy level where we as you know, state representatives, um, my policy staff above me, or not my staff, my bosses above me, um, will meet with uh, tribal chairs, tribal elders, fish commission members of individual tribes. And so these are, you know, pretty highly regulatory and regulated meetings because, you know, there is nothing but respect to the people who, whose ancestry is the lands that we're on. And it is, at the end of the day, I've always thought, and this is my thought, that it's how can we manage a value? And it's, it's really a, a thought process or a thought question of how can we as statisticians or biometricians or just fish techs tell another group of people that something is not value because numbers say so. That's like impossible to do. It's square peg, round hole. Um, so that's when, you know, I feel pretty fortunate to fall back on a, my very interdisciplinary master's program to where a lot of it was people. So, you know, I, I like to say, you know, like, I don't manage the fish. Fish are going to do it. Fish are going to do absolutely nothing. I type is going to affect this fish coming back to Washington. I manage the people who harvest. You know, I can make regs and rules all day long that say what you're going to keep, what you're going to discard, you know, how long you can keep your net in the water. But nothing I work on is going to tell that chum to keep going straight down to Nisqually. 
are there differences in how the U.S. government organizations and the tribal organizations kind of go about the management of these species? Yeah, um, not really. You know, uh, not, not really to there being big differences. Yeah, tribes have their fish techs. They work collaboratively with our samplers. Um, we collaborate together. So like a most recent collaboration, my colleague, Dr. Simonson, Kirsten Simonson, does is our recreational fishery manager for Puget Sound on, for salmon. Uh, in her realm is test fishing. And so when they go out and hook and line, kind of the, the guys we were talking about, uh, we've worked really closely in these last couple years with Puyallup to actually help us collect that data. So Puyallup being a South Sound tribe and their fisheries management staff and technicians have come out to assist in that data collection. Largely, overall, we are looking at the same data using the same methodology to collect the incoming harvest data. And then similarly for, you know, as like one thing we didn't really talk about was like forecasting, you know, how do you determine how many fish are coming back to what river? Um, a lot of that's done with smolt out migration count. And then, you know, looking at ocean conditions and different indices to then calculate abundance returning and adult survival. And so, you know, those forecast methods change left and right depending on the river system. But it's never a process that's done devoid of collaboration. It's always a process that it has a DFW state representative, NWIFC, so Indian Fisheries Commission, and whatever regional tribal staff. Very so, cool. Yeah, very rarely. I mean, I can't really even think of an example to give you where it was this regulatory decision was made solely by one group. I don't, it's just something that just doesn't happen here. That's really awesome. I feel like this is a great example of where collaboration can work between groups that have different, like you were saying earlier, like different cultural significance over these resources that are shared. Mm -hmm. um, so it's very cool to hear that. Yeah. Now I would like to talk a little bit about outreach. Mm -hmm. Because I actually found you on social media, which is how I know about your work. Yeah. I'm interested to hear about, you know, your outreach experience, whether it's, you know, through an organization or just through your own social media platform and kind of why it's important to you. Yeah. Um, so I am really bad at volunteering generally. <laughs> I just, I don't know why. But as I've gotten older, um, as I have gotten my five-year-old nephew and my two-year-old niece, um, you know, seeing the joy, especially for younger folks, um, in their face, wherein I'm showing them something really, really cool. It's like, oh, Tio Kwasi, look, you know, what's this bug? And like, I don't know my insects that well, but I, I know I know enough. Um, kids have endless questions, and you're just oh supposed gosh. to know them. You're just supposed to know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> and I hate it when it's like a lot of animal-based stuff. And I'm like, damn it, I do know the answer. Uh, <laughs> it's like, how do I remember this? Yet I can never take the garbage out on Fridays because like it, every Friday is apparently a new universe to me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so my kind of beginning with uh, collaboration, like you said, you know, I, I'm not a TikToker, Snapchat. Those ones are just over my head, but I can manage Instagram except for reels. That's still kind of confusing. And realizing that, wow, there's a lot of, there's a huge community of people that do really, really cool work where it 
got really fun for me was a couple years ago, it was like the inaugural or inaugural uh, Black Birders Week on Instagram. And I was like, this is like, I didn't know there's these like week events that, you know, some group somewhere on the East Coast can put on digitally and everyone across the world can do their thing and, you know, submit photos. And um, then there was like a Black Hikers Week and I got to give a little intro about myself and, you know, share my experiences as a biracial person in the Northwest growing up in a pretty nature forward family. You know, as much as any other kind of Seattle family. So from there, I was like, okay, this this works. This is cool. I enjoy sharing my perspective on things with other people. And I then was like, okay, at work, can I do any of this? Because, you know, <laughs> shockingly, I probably shouldn't say that so sarcastically, but it's very true with our natural resources just across the board in this area of where it kind of bridges academia going into you know, government work in certain fields, we're just, we're still really, really facing a challenge from diversity and mm-hmm. lack thereof. And we can categorize diversity as whatever we want. You know, like for me, I think more along the lines of why is it that I can count the number of African-American biologists at an agency with 15, yeah, 1,500 people on one hand? Mm. Like, yeah. Um, yeah. Why is it that we don't have, you know, a lot of senior leadership who are members of a minority group? That's something like that's the fire under my butt is that type of diversity. And it's very personal to me because I remember going on a field trip in third grade, went on a boat. It was probably my first time on like anything over the like then like a canoe. We left downtown Seattle. We put a plankton net in the water. We looked at uh, you know, whatever came up in a little com- little microscope thingy. And, you know, the captain was like, who wants to drive the boat? And we got to drive the boat. You have like kind of like figments of that day. I do know from that day, I told everyone I wanted to be a marine zoologist. No clue what that was or meant. I just knew that I wanted to look at stuff in the water because this was cool. And the Puget Sound is right there. So been saying Puget Sound and Salish Sea. It's a giant glacial fjord that just carved its way out in the last ice age in Washington, and it separates the Olympic Peninsula from the main chunk of Washington. It's all saltwater. It is connected to the Pacific Ocean by the Strait of Juan de Fuca. That separates Canada and Washington, the U.S. Um, It's a huge shipping corridor. We have Seattle, big city, Tacoma, big city, and there's She's over a thousand islands. People live all throughout this area. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a really, really, really unique ecosystem. And I knew at a young age, I was like, this is home. This is I, like, I don't need to move to do the cool stuff that I want to do. And so part of doing that, you know, being in my late thirties now is like, I need to be giving that back. Like that experience was so, that's, a, you know, hashtag core memory unlocked. <laughs> that experience was so foundational to me. So as of late, I've been working with Tacoma Urban League. Um, Over the summer, I unfortunately only got to do one after-school class. Um, 
and doing stuff that's as simple as just like, let's talk about mammals, urban wildlife that we see in Washington. Uh, I do have another event coming up with them where I'll work with uh, some hatchery staff and we'll take a group of kids to a local hatchery. Uh, Tacoma Urban League is uh, minority led, uh, working with underprivileged kids in the Tacoma area. So that's kind of mid sound city south of Seattle, north of where I live in Olympia, <clears throat> and just showing them what, you know, representation looks like. Um, I think it's great when these groups get to go to all sorts of different facilities. You know, they get a tour in NOAA, they get to go to UW and look at, you know, the research boats, they get to, you know, see, you know, fantastic things. However, being a person of color and having done those field trips as a youth, the connection is often lost when it's nonstop older white folk saying, you can do this. There is that disconnect when you don't see ever, ever see yourself doing it, only hearing that you can do it. So I, I do put a pretty big weight on my shoulders of, I need to be that connect. I, you know, I want to be the brown face that the other brown face in the back of the class sees when I say, hey, you can do this. And they're like, oh my gosh, that guy is like me, but you know, 30 years older. That's really cool. I guess I can do that. So working with Tacoma Urban League, I, I, we did a fishing event a couple months ago. I got to invite my family. And so my brother's African-American and Venezuelan, so we're Afro-Latino. And my um, sister-in-law, his wife is Filipina. So they're my nephew and my niece are these little brown babies that are the most adorable things in the freaking universe. And my nephew's five and I got to take him to catch our first fish together and you know, him seeing that, being surrounded by folks from his culture, from other cultures, from, you know, Tacoma is a pretty diverse town comparatively to Seattle. You know, that meant the world to me to be able to share that with my nephew. Um, see, and then even, even though he's five, you know, he still sees that, hey, it's not someone who doesn't look like me telling me that this thing is possible. The, the other end of that is working collaboratively with groups who do the outreach. Um, Salish Sea School is one where we haven't set up anything, quote unquote, official. We both just work on the same waters at the same time. And anytime I see their boat out when we're out doing work, we raft up and they generally will have a group of uh, school children from all sorts, mostly the uh, northern Puget Sounds like Bellingham, Whatcom County, Concrete area. They do a lot of programs with uh, indigenous schools and kids uh, in the northern kind of like Anacortes area. And so we raft up and we talk about the work that we're doing, which is tons of fun. Like that's that we just did that three days ago. We saw each other on the water and tied off for a little bit. And I let my crew introduce themselves. You know, they, these guys and gals all have different backgrounds on how they got into the field. And it's, I mean, I think it's so important for young women on these boats going out or doing, you know, whatever in STEM to also see older women representing their fields. Like, it's really, really cool. 
and I think my, my staff really actually enjoyed that. They're like, wow, we didn't know that we could just, you know, talk to kids and be a part of this. And it's like, heck yeah, we can. Whether or not they're, you know, half days, full days, making sure that even if it is quote unquote work time, like, yeah, we are headed from one survey to another survey, hanging out with kids for 15 minutes. I mean, one kid looked bored out of his mind. One kid gave me a high five. You know, maybe that was the the third grade trip that I had back in the day for for this trip when it truly is, you know, kids coming out because they have a passion for that. Or even if they're just on a summer camp, you're going to affect that one person who will continue on. Yeah, I'm really happy that you also brought up the kid who is bored because obviously it's important, you know, that kids who are already in, interested in science or maybe didn't know they were interested and then learned like, you know, you're sparking something in that kid. But the kid who's bored is learning something also. <laughs> and it's that maybe science isn't for them. Um, totally. But yeah, like you said, it's so important that these that kids from all different walks of life have these experiences with science and other and any STEM field to kind of say, this is something you can do. And then yeah, having that representation is super important. I'm passionate about that as well as a Latina and a queer person. If they can see that I'm, I'm, I've done it, you know, maybe that, yeah. that will give somebody at least a little bit more of a belief in themselves that if somebody like them can do it, they can do it also. Exactly. Yeah, that's awesome. Random little anecdote, but I was actually on a scuba diving boat yesterday and I was probably the youngest person on the boat, definitely the only woman on the boat. And definitely the most ethnic person on the boat. And it was uh, it was kind of staggering, you know, to just be like, wow, even after even after all this time, this is still what this boat looks like, huh? <laughs> yep. Yeah, I, I think that left and right. Um, yeah. In certain settings, where it's just like, my God, you know, one of the most recent ones for me was attending the Salmon Recovery Conference we had here in, in Washington back in April. There was folks from all over the West Coast, and it still was like, geez, Louise, man, come on, people, really? I thought we were doing really, really good and getting a little less homogenous, but... I think it's also just that people, like, people who are in the minority are looking for other people who are in the minority. That's very true. So we're seeing, <laughs> like, we're seeing each other. <laughs> That is super true, yeah. And then when you put everyone together, we're like, oh, yeah, we're definitely still, <laughs> we're still in the minority. Mm-hmm. I know there are some people who are just so tired of everybody talking about identity and it doesn't matter and whatever, but it matters. Oh, it definitely matters. And we see it all the time because as much as the folks who say that they're tired, you know, why does it always have to be a quote unquote race issue or, you know, blah, 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 this or like you just said, you know, why are we still talking about identity? It's like, why are you still passing laws about identity then, boogers, mm-hmm. to not swear? <laughs> because uh, my thoughts on this would not make it a good podcast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Those are all the questions that I have for you that are specific to your field, unless there's anything mm-hmm. that you think I left out that you would like to talk about. Um, yeah, I think the one thing that I would like to kind of briefly talk about is like my bridge career of working in the maritime industry. 
Yeah, absolutely. Because it's really important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so working in the maritime industry, I didn't go directly from undergrad to grad. I took five and a half years off, not necessarily intentionally. I remember applying to grad school well before I was ready, like interviewing at Moss Landing while I was on a camping trip. Like, what the hell was I thinking? Uh, <laughs> I just had no concept at the time. This was, I was probably like 24 right after undergrad. And I know there's plenty of people who are boom, high school, boom, undergrad, master's, PhD, and that's their track and they love it and they're fantastic scientists. I definitely was not one. I really knew that science was my end goal and working in some sort of ecological career, how I would get there, I appreciated the amount of time I kind of gave myself. So uh, from whale watching boats or uh, an internship with Cascadia Research here in Olympia, uh, going out uh, in the spring, winter, early spring, to go uh, get photo IDs for migratory gray whales that come into the Puget Sound called Sounders. There's, it's really cool. They just like use this area as a pit stop. Some of them don't even go further north uh, up to the Bering, where it's just their normal feeding grounds. Um, so there's a huge data set out there to see which whales are coming in. I got to be a part of that back in 06, collecting the, and I happened to just hit it off with the boat I was on. I really liked watching the deckhands work. Uh, again, this was not a fan. I have no family background in sailors. So after I graduated, I called that whale watching. Boat. I was like, Hey, are you guys hiring? And the captain goes, nobody want a job. And <laughs> so I was the greenest deckhand pretty bad my first couple months. And that just launched this whole, side career that is you know now like i'm a firm believer have a trade be really good at one thing so from that boat oh it's been numerous different smaller charter boats uh testing for uh, coast guard licenses getting a, a master's license and the coast guard does it by uh, certain tonnages so i'm i'm limited but i have a pretty high tonnage license and, you know, all these different international certifications called STCWs. I was like, I'm going to spend this chunk of time learning boats. This is so cool. So I've worked on high-speed ferries. I worked on crew and launch boats. So boats that bring um, the crews out to anything you'd see anchored up in the bays. That company also did pilot work. So we got to come alongside and take pilots who are the local knowledge captains with very, very large unlimited licenses um, who are responsible for safely piloting and instructing the captain of these, you know, foreign flagged and U.S. flagships through Puget Sound waters because you can't expect every international captain to be like, I know this, you know, stretch of 120 miles intricately. It's like, no, you don't. (laughs) So we have pilots, uh, most all marine waters will have piloted areas. And you know, I, I don't own a boat. My thoughts is like, I'm if I'm going to be on a boat, I'm going to be paid to be there. So that's just been a passion of mine. Even in grad school, in my summer in between the two years, I went and worked on a tugboat from Seattle and you know, do a run from Seattle to Southeast Alaska. And I just cranked that out for the whole summer. I think I gave myself two weeks off that summer. Um, learned tons. You know, I was able to upgrade my license from uh, the tonnage requirements that the tugboat gave me. Uh, and now I apply that every day uh, in 2019 or 1819. I was fortunate enough to work with a company in Bremerton called Lifeproof Boats 
to from scratch, or I should say a base model, design a research vessel with them. And that's now my current research vessel that we use to deploy fisheries observers. Um, we also have a second life proof that we did get used, but we will make it work with slight modifications over the years. Um, so like I, I cherish this boat and I cherish this knowledge of being, you know, now 16 years into the maritime industry, you know, if a chunk of that also overlaying the scientific career. Um, I do sometimes moonlight for other companies out there, uh, some contract work, using my license and certifications and endorsements. Uh, it's just so cool. It's so cool to be able to just go out and have a lot of knowledge about how to stay safe on the water, about, you know, crew management. I think it's something that's given me, uh, made me a pretty good supervisor is, you know, being uh, a captain in certain scenarios or a crew lead, a senior deckhand, a bosun in certain, in, on certain boats to be able to then take those skills and apply them in my current uh, supervisory role of high scientific technicians. This is what I'm going to need you to do. You're going to be responsible for fisheries observing, but you're also going to be learning a lot about research vessel etiquette, how to handle uh, lines, how to be safe. You know, our boats, when we think about research boats, I'm sure you probably think like the UNOLS fleet, you know, like the big boats out of all the colleges. We're a lot smaller. <laughs> uh, we are about 33 feet in length is our, what we call big, our smaller boats, 28 feet. But, you know, like my background was on boats in like the 80 to 100 foot range. And so stepping down and like kind of relearning these skills on small boats was like, whoa, this is way different. These things are sports cars compared to what I'm used to. And now it's just uh, like going out on work, like we were doing a humpback whale transect survey as part of a NOAA biological opinion for 2025. We're kind of collecting some pre-baseline data on humpback presence in known non-treaty uh, commercial gillnet and persane fishing areas. So it's like, why is the salmon biologist going out and looking for humpbacks? It's like, well, our, our nets could, could affect them. Um, we're hoping... They don't. Entanglement is next to ship strike, um, a pretty big issue for large whales. And I could talk about that for a while. It's a, it's a fun, my fun little side project. It's kind of my harebrained idea of let's get out there and actually quantitatively see where these humpbacks are in comparison to our known fisheries areas. Um, but it, it, that all would not be possible without the background I got in the maritime industry. And similarly to kind of outreach in the STEM and scientific realm, you know, I do have a pretty fun community of mariners through social media, through just the local community here is so interwoven. We all know each other. We all come from different, you know, deckhand or engineer careers. And some of us kind of got out of it a little bit, but it's like, you know, these people are just so integral and, and around that it is, you know, really behooves young folks. I always tell them, you know, keep your nose clean because uh, everyone in our Puget Sound area knows everyone if we're working on the water, especially in the fisheries or commercial sector. Like we're one pretty close knit community. Yeah. Thank you for wanting to um, kind of bring that up because one thing that I do try to emphasize through the podcast is less than linear journeys to fishery science mm -hmm. or any or any STEM field. I think the value of doing something else for however long is 
like you said, you have skills from your career in the maritime industry that are invaluable to your career now in fisheries. Whether it's, like you said, the actual act of driving and caring for a research vessel or how you relate to people and the connections that you made that now, you know, are helping you in your current career. Like, as weird as it sounds, I kind of see my bartending career this way. (laughs) Maybe not in the networking sense, but in the, you know, talking to people, performing tasks under stress. Um, You know, it's not weird at all. Yeah, there are so many skills that you can get outside of science that are very, very, very applicable. One of my best observers ever had a heavy service industry career. I do not know how she got commercial fishermen to be so freaking compliant and nice. (laughs) To the point to where we had to rein it in. Like, no, you can't make my crew oatmeal in the morning, dude. That's creepy. Like, and he was like, but I put cinnamon on it. (laughs) You're borderline. Go back on your fishing boat. We need to do work. (laughs) And it's just, you know, yes, there are lines, but it spoke to this person's ability to read people, Mm -hmm. to understand and you know as i'm sure you I, i've never bartended my most my the most of my service industry i i got out of it because i realized that my ability to back talk is a hair trigger and i i can't do that in the service industry i washed dishes at an old spaghetti factory for like three weeks before i was like this is my version of hell i need <laughs> to get out of here i can't stress and i've had several staff ask me like why did you select me for this like i'm learning so much because i've never worked with fish and i say like hey well it's a scientific tech too that's our entry level position i've read your resume i've read your cover letter why why do you think you're not deserving of this job you're completely deserving of this job yeah it's kind of crazy like a lot of a lot of young kids really are shooting themselves in the foot quite early on Mm -hmm. um by just not believing that they're ready to do technician work. And it's like, just wait until you get out of the technician side and into the side where it's, you know, there's not SOPs dictating the work you're doing. You got to be thinking on your feet left and right. And so many of them have service industry working out of malls or teens. And I can see how it benefits them completely. Like the ones that I have struggled with the most, and I'm not trying to shame anyone here, but the kids that have a very sparse resume maybe are a little more well off, like went to college and are like, what is work? (laughs) And then still drive a really nice car. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) uh, okay, bud. (laughs) Yeah. We're we're not going to be on the water for eight hours today. Try 10. And then we got to travel. So uh, are you ready? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. Awesome. Thanks for, thanks for bringing that up. Yeah. Um, all right. If you're ready, I think we're going to head into the final five questions. Excellent. Yeah. Perfect. Um, so the first one is, what's your favorite fish? Okay. So it's not a salmon. Shocking. <laughs> um, I really like spiny lump suckers. They're so stupid looking. They're just like, bleep. I don't know. They just look so funny to me and just hanging out. And, you know, like, in the genre of fish, this range in size, but the, the little ones, like the little Pacific one, that's like you can, you know, the masses of cam- camouflage, those weird scaly plates, like, and that weird modification of the 
oh, freaking the not pec fins, the thoracic fins, or fins, I don't know. Pelvic fins. Pelvic fins. There we go. I was like, I knew it's somewhere on a body <laughs> into the into the little sucky disc thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they just they're just cute and cool. They were silly little guys for sure. Any fish that can make me laugh because I'm like, you're so ridiculous. Yeah. Are, are fish that I like. Mm-hmm. And then to me, salmon are just they're just beautiful. They're huge. Like as far as like the evolutionary tactics go hands down salmon are cool like to to be able to handle that osmosis or the the regulatory change from fresh to salt water and back and to be like this is something that i'm gonna adapt to for my survival what the hell it's yeah i I, there's really you know anadromy itself is super cool in fishes Definitely. Plus they taste good. They're very yeah. delicious. <laughs> the, uh, the different environments that they can not only survive, but thrive in. It's pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. Awesome. All right. Next question. Uh, what's your favorite memory from your career so far? Ooh. Um, this is, gosh, so many. Uh, I, I will pick two that tie so first one was doing some protected species work um, with the U.S. Coast Guard, and I was through a fisheries contractor. The first time I got to see a polar bear in the wild from an icebreaker, it was just, and it wasn't the best sighting. It was like, I don't even know what time because we were above the Arctic Circle in the summer, so it was like the sun setting or going up. I don't really remember. I mean, it was just like at the horizon. <laughs> Um, and I was on watch with the big eyes and the polar bear did the thing where they cover their little black snout with a paw. And you could, you just saw this lump of, it went like white, 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 kind of off white, white. And it was like in between the two white lumps, you see that kind of off white lump, that's a polar bear. And Aww. it was, you could see its breath and it was, so it was probably stalking a ring seal or something like that. Yeah. That was a really cool project to be a part of. So that one, and then a recent memory from working out pretty close to, to the Pacific Ocean in Washington. We were still in the Strait of George, or Strait of Juan de Fuca. Um, the ocean was not having it; it was blowing out there. So in the Strait, we were getting these epic ground swells that were like ten to twelve feet, to the point that the uh, recreational fishing fleet that we were working with would just kind of disappear when we were in the trough. And then you'd see a whole bunch when we were up on the crest, nothing, nothing was breaking though. It was just these big swells. And it was the first year that I had our new research boat and this boat. I mean, it's, this thing flies, it's super powerful. It's fat and stable. has all these fun Furuno electronics on it. So coming home, we had the super long run from, this town of CQ almost on the coast back into Anacorta. So we got to, we would go all the way through the San Juans and we were just surfing down the face of these swells, at like 30 knots. And we climb up the next one. It feels like a roller coaster. Like you're just going to, like you don't see any more wave. You just see the top of the wave that you're on. And then you skitter back down the other one. And of course there was, it was a day that we also saw like 25 individual humpbacks. I don't know what they're doing. Well, feeding on herring. 
but we got to see mothers with recent calves, like not the babies that you'll see in Hawaii, but post-migration over to the West Coast, and then their escorts, which are these like gigantic bull whales. So all in all, it's one of those days where you are just enamored with you know marine life. You're just like, this is, yeah, this is a blue planet moment. It was, it was too cool. So if you don't have it already, uh, what is your dream job or your dream location to work in? Location, I think I would be somewhere more close, like San Juan Islands. I could see work living, working on one of the smaller islands, or maybe Friday Harbor um, on San Juan Island. They're just a pain in the butt to get to with our Washington State ferry system. So I'd have to have a really cool boat. Mm. <laughs> or like an old sailboat. I don't know. I sail a bunch too. It's kind of a, a recreational pastime. Job wise though, like what would I be doing? I would say hmm, similar work. We're working kind of with the general public's understanding of fisheries. Cause I think there's just so much out there that's misinformation. You know, how do we bring what, what like what all my buddies and coworkers and people in the know how do we get that know out further i think i could, i would enjoy that i don't know if i really have a specific dream job i mean if my dream oh well my dream dream job is space tugboat captain but that doesn't exist so that that's like what my dream job would be doesn't exist yet yet no, I know like when they're talking about like future meteors and we're just going to send like a space tugboat up to use its mass to gravitationally shift the meteor away. I want to be that space tugboat captain. It's out in cool. the world now. Manifest. Yep. Manifest it. Well, then that also means we're manifesting a meteor that's going to about to. Yeah, I guess that's not. Good. Yeah, let's Never not mind. do that. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> um, so if money were not an issue, what's one project you'd love to work on? I would like to, if money were not an issue, I'd like to have a larger fleet of research vessels. I would like to have a much larger vessel. Um, I'd like to continue the work in Puget Sound uh, on multiple species in this to try to do like an, an ecosystem-based approach to understanding the decline in Puget Sound habitat. I want to attack it from both ends of the trophic level, like bottom up and top down. We're doing a really good job of some like mid-level work, but I just don't ever see it connecting together. Um, there was amazing work done with the Salish Sea Marine Survival Project that like our agency plus all these nonprofits, plus all these tribes and NOAA worked on for several years to understand um, salmon survival in the Northwest or in Puget Sound. But I think, you know, Let's bring even more species into that. Let's look at sand lance, forage fish, herring. Let's look at, you know, the effects of nutrient loading by our, you know, point and non-point pollution. Then we have these massive algal blooms. Like, how is this driving, you know, driving down or crashing dissolved oxygen, oxygen in some areas? And we have these fish dives, like, but then we have these top-down effects of changing in predator assemblages to where we have like you know i'm sure you've heard some stuff about our southern resident killer whales not utilizing the sailor sea as their primary summer habitat because of salmon populations declining and vessel noise increasing and vessel abundance you know there's tons of work being done on that but like how do we clip these together 
how do we make the story more compelling? Let's just start clipping all these things together and manage from an ecosystem level. We are really good at single species management. We being like pretty much every single natural resource agency across the state, any state you pick, how would we approach it to be like, because of this swath of data, we're not going to fish Dungeness crab at this level. We're maybe going to increase it because we have this other competing interest over here. Managers are so used to managing people and people's needs that I think we forget that those changes in policy and regulations directly affect the organism we're either harvesting on and harvested organisms directly affect non-harvested organisms by changing in species assemblages. Yeah, that's my very long spiel on if money were not an issue, I would work with a lot of people and design the largest ecosystem-based management protocol for this region and also have really cool boats to play on. All right. Last question for you. Yeah. If there is one point or principle you could have programmed into everyone's head, what would it be? Just be kind and be kind to yourself. That's, it's really tough. I see it all the time in my field. I think we are very quick to assign blame, assign anger or aggression to, um, you know, managers, to fisheries techs, to when really it's it's something else, you know, but everyone's working towards the same goal. Like, I've never seen anyone maliciously trying to sabotage a fishery. <laughs> you know, I've seen plenty of angry fishermen who, are, who want to harvest more um, from the recreational and commercial aspect. I've seen plenty of angry fisheries managers and fish techs feeling like their work isn't respected or, you know, the policy doesn't understand and this vice versa and it goes around. And I think if, you know, if people just took one big collective step back, said, what's our goal and how do we approach it being respectfully, just being cool and kind with each other. Of course, there's going to be disagreements, but they're, they can be overcome with very simple conversation and a very strong acknowledgement of what you know the values of the goals are. And a lot of that starts with just being respectful and nice to yourself. Awesome. Well, that is all the questions that I have for you. Thank you so much for being on the show today. This was so much fun. So if people want to find out more information or get a hold of you, um, how would they mm-hmm. do that? Workwise would be my first name, K-W-A-S-I dot my last name, which is A-D-D-A-E as an echo, at D as in Delta, F-W dot W-A dot gov. So day at D-F-W dot W-A dot gov. You can reach me there for most anything fish related. Any other inquiry would be my first name, Kwasi131 at Gmail. Dot com, And then my super emo Instagram handle, because I refuse to change it from when I was a kid, crusader underscore of underscore hopelessness. I laugh every time I read it or hear it. It's silly, <laughs> but it's not changing. And if someone out there gets the song reference, please be my friend. We're going to be friends. 
So if anybody listening would like to get a hold of me or any of the other hosts, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at fisheriespod or via email at feedback at thefisheriespodcast.com. You can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream it from Spotify or thefisheriespodcast.com. And don't forget, you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon or by rocking some awesome Fisheries Podcast merch, which is available on Teespring. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks for listening in. And remember, be kind to yourself.